When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Ooh, hello, everybody. I was trying to be extra spooky there, but that didn't work, did it? Hey, it's uh, Snark Monkey number 20, and the reason I'm being spooky, more than usual, is that our guest is George Norrie. Largely because his show has been known over time on the radio, called Coast to Coast AM, to delve into the world of spooks and ghosts and spirits, as well as UFOs, alien abductions, but has also delved into scientific discovery, uh, including conspiracy theories. It runs the gamut. It's always fascinating, and it is a particular breed of guest and listener that is a part of the Coast to Coast AM community. And if you are here, you probably already are aware of George Norrie and a fan. So welcome to Snark Monkey. Uh, by the way, you can hear Coast to Coast AM live nightly from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Pacific Time. Check your local listings. But he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And has had such an interesting life from a man who started out uh, growing up in Detroit, was supposed to be a dentist, got into news, got into television news, moved out of it, tried to figure out how to reinvent himself, and became this figure in this particular world of broadcasting, and ultimately he has carved out a completely unique niche for himself. And he's not a kook. George is the nicest, just most approachable, reasonable, grounded man who happens to have some pretty strong beliefs, and we get into it. And something, actually, it's pretty fascinating because George doesn't spend a lot of time on the radio talking about what he believes he lets other people present their case, which I think is one of the things that's really great about his show. He gives it a, gives a platform to all. Um, but we get into some stuff, and I, I found out he has some very particular beliefs about some things that are going on in the world, and I think you'll find it fascinating. He also has a brand-new book out that he has co-written with Richard Belzer, who you may know as an actor and comedian, and famously now uh, quite the conspiracy theorist. Uh, Belzer and David Wayne and George Norrie have all collaborated on this book called Someone is Hiding Something, and it's available right now. It's based on the number of different theories about what had happened to that Malaysian Airlines flight, number 370, that they still haven't found. And as far as we can tell, they just stopped looking for it. Where'd that thing go? That's a big plane. That's a lot of people. What the heck happened? It's called Someone is Hiding Something. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can find it on his website at coasttocoastam.com. But listen to George's life. Uh, what a terrific story. Uh, great conversationalist. And I think you'll like it. Here is Snark Monkey number 20, George Norrie. Enjoy. You got a book coming out, right? 
we starting? Uh, yeah, oh, we started. Yeah, this is not very informal. This is it. We're going to cover everything. This is it. What's, yeah, you've already How done about your a little introduction. No, you're going to get an introduction. Right. People know who you are. Okay, I mean, you're more famous than almost anyone I've had on this podcast. All right, well, tell me when you're starting. It started. This is see you've done your structured radio you're, show. You're running, you're running it now the way it is. Look, you're going to run it this look, way. Look, you you radio guys got to get hip with this podcast thing. I George. am. I podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I podcast before most people do. No, but this is going to be you know this is a very casual thing because I want to talk about all sorts of things. I want to talk about the new thing you've got going on, but I want to talk, talk about, about your about life. Anything. Great. Anything. Where were you born? But you got to let me know when you're starting. We started. You'll have a. There'll be a big intro. There'll be a big build up. It's all going to happen after the fact. No fanfare. Nothing. No. It's all going to be in post. All right. Yeah. Start with your question. This isn't like a live radio show, George. You know, with the big produced thing. I've got no budget. This is me. This is coming out of my pocket. No wonder. This is my passion and my love and my need to let the world you, know. You could the, have ambushed me, and I wouldn't have known it. How do you know? You this? could have been doing these off-the-cuff things. Hey, so tell me about your personal life. What do you do? I wouldn't do and that. Tell you these so things. tell me about your personal life. Well, <laughs> I have none. That's all I do is work. George, you are the, one of the most fascinating people on... Um, well, you're just one of the most fascinating people in general. I like your Doors shirt. Given to me by the late Ray Manzarek. No. From the Doors. When I had them on Coast to Coast... I had uh, I had Ray and Robbie Krieger on, two of the four total. Yes. Right, one was a drummer, but uh, Morrison is dead, of course. Right, we think that's why I had them on. Oh. Is Jim Morrison still alive? Yeah, people are still showing up at his gravesite every year on the anniversary. But he right? came in and gave me this T-shirt. That's pretty great. It's an original. I should have had him sign it. Are you uh, are you a rock guy? Do no, you have, not no? really. I I'm a I came from a different era. Um, I was born in 1950, and I listened to all my mother's old records. Right. Sinatra, Elvis, Nelson Eddy. Yeah, but you so, grew up in the 60s, though. Well, didn't yeah, you, but didn't I you latch onto that. that? I did. I did. But, you know, like, I appreciate great music. I think uh, Nikki and Motley Crue are great. Uh, ACDC at the Grammys were great. Yeah. But I've been more into things like the Beach Boys and okay. Frankie Valley and Neil Sedaka. So singers stuff. more, singers. Yeah, with ball- ballads and yeah? stuff. Bobby Darren, which I really got into after I saw Kevin Spacey's movie. Oh, yeah. Beyond the Sea. Right. Um, and things like that. I really wish I would have listened to it more. But, you know, when he died, I was only like 25 or 26 years old. But you grew up in Detroit. Big, Motown, yeah, big music. I loved city. them all. Yeah, loved them all. So, so that stuff turned you on the yep. the all, all the Barry Gordy stuff, all the the Wallace Sound, Phil Spector, his Great stuff. stuff. Yeah, used to go see um, the Four Tops all the time, singing at uh, the Rooster Tail in in uh, Windsor, Canada, and oh, sweet, great guys, Detroit. Great music city. D- Detroit was. I mean, they really had they did, they carved out a very specific sound. Of their own. I mean that that that's as unique an American music as you can come up with from that town. Yes. What was it about Detroit? Why why Detroit? Do you think created that scenario, or is it just the the people that happened to be there, right place at the right time? Yeah. And it had Barry Gordy. Gordy. Yeah. Gordy. He was a he was a genius, 
They also had Gordy Howe, the hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> all the best Gordies come from That's Detroit. That's right. All the Gordies are there. <laughs> and but it was there. He he was there. He set it up, and uh, he did his thing. And Motown Records, I remember, had a little tiny was in a little tiny building, looked like a little house, and it just exploded. Give people an idea what Detroit was like for you, because obviously Detroit for a long time has had a terrible reputation because of whatever poverty, riots, and poverty, poverty and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it feels like as long as I've been hearing about Detroit, I've been hearing either those jokes or those news stories about negativity of it being a really bad place to be. And I know they're going still through economic issues and huge and and it's going to take a long time to recover what was detroit like for you as a kid i was born there so you know it was my city yeah i got to know it Uh, i developed my broadcast career there Uh, i met people there Uh, i loved it i loved the sports teams i still do i've got my st louis son into detroit stuff (laughs) he's hooked on that now but it was a great you know detroit was a metropolitan giant of a city man Primarily because of the automobile industry. Right. They were there, and when the automobile industry was strong, the UAW, the Union of the Workers, was strong, it was a powerful city. Yeah. Uh, it's lost a lot of the clout right now. You know, poverty has hit it yeah. and everything else. Big uh, city, somewhat cosmopolitan, but but really blue-collar. Midwest. Yeah. Midwest. So that those kind of values and that kind of... You know, hardy stock and those people and living through tough winters and rooting for sports. I mean, is that kind of. Yeah, it's like it's like Chicago. Yeah, it's like it's not as cosmopolitan as Chicago, but it's a big town. Um, But it's a beautiful city. And uh, I hope to God one day it comes back because it it deserves to come back. There's been too much great things that have come out of that town. You see them trying. You see little neighborhoods popping up. You see some arts areas, and, and uh, you see some effort, but it, it's going to take a while. You could buy a house there for a buck. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, I know. At auction? you got to pay the taxes for it. Yeah. But you can buy a house for a dollar. Let's go. What do you think it looks like? I don't know. I mean, are there nice homes for nothing there? I are there just so. uh, Are there just ghost towns I, of, of of tract homes? I think and, you get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's worth about a it looks about a, like a dollar home. Yeah, that's right. What What'd your parents do? Dad was a financial analyst at Ford Motor Company uh, until he retired at the age of sixty. He passed away at the age of eighty eight. My mother uh, worked in retail. She worked for a company that invented the single handed faucet that you see in just about every house these days. Oh, yeah. She was a uh, assistant to Alex Manoogian, the inventor. And uh, then she retired, and uh, she's still going. She's 85 years old. Oh, great. Avid listener to Coast to Coast. Excellent. Will call me up the next day and go, why did you have that guy on? Are you getting George? critiques from mom, mom still? Mom critiques. Wow. She does that, and she wants books of the guests. <laughs> Send me that book. Her favorite man, when she heard Pat Boone on the air. She said, got to have him call me. Have him call me now. And so he was with me. And I said, Pat, do you mind if we call my mom? Would you say hi to her? And he went, no, not at all. Oh, so man. I did. And she talked forever. And I said, you know, Mom, you're still married at the time. You, know, you can't fool around here. <laughs> Quit flirting with Pat That's Boone, right. for crying out loud. So I, he gave me some suede shoes. Pat Boone did. That, uh, that tied into, I guess, his song. I mailed them to her. 
So she's got them somewhere. <laughs> Probably mounted uh, that's, in a... That's a lady who threw away my baseball cards from oh, the 50s. Why did moms and my do comics. that? comics. Yes, yes. All of them. George, we all have that story. Moms had no idea. They were worth millions, I bet. My grandmother did it to my dad. My mom did it to me. I mean, the stuff that I know I had at the time that I was keeping in pretty good shape. I mean, I think it was... Mine were two. Yeah. I had every Superman comic book. Every one. Every one. I had baseball cards that went back to 1950. Oh. Classics. Mickey Mantle, oh. Roger Maris. I, you know, I didn't have the Babe Ruths in those. No, but... But, but, I, but I had the old yeah, ones. They yeah. were there. <laughs> You could have financed Gone. the George Norrie empire. I, a couple stuff. of years ago, when I was back in Detroit with her, I went through the basement because she's still in the same house that they moved in when I was eight. Uh -huh. And I was convinced I was going to find them. I know they're in here, Mom. <laughs> I know you didn't throw them away. They're here somewhere. Oh, and I just can't find them. That's painful. You know? But I can't tell you how many, many men, grown men, have that story, the anguish over and it's not even about i mean it's a combination of of the collection and and the potential you the know potential the potential riches sure but also just that's part of our childhood i mean you uh, every superman comic that was your guy yeah and really? see that was my mistake when i moved out of the house i think i was about 20 years old i'd gotten married i was going to college full time we had a little baby girl and i married my high school sweetheart at the time I should have brought that stuff with me. Sure. Well, instead, I kept it all in the basement. You know, like, it's okay. It's yeah. safe there. I'll, I don't have room for yeah, it. Yeah, when I get a bigger I'm house. I'm in a little tiny you. apartment right. or something. Right. But, ah. Oh. I know. I know. So when did your interest in, did, did either one of your parents have an interest in the kind of topics that you talk about every my night? My mother did. Yeah. My mother Because she's did. into it now, obviously. N neither one of them was interested in broadcasting. Uh, and I'll tell you a funny story about that later, but... My mother was into the unusual uh, at uh, her very young age, and she kind of, like, taught me. She would bring me home books on UFOs, mm -hmm. and she would point out things in Look Magazine about the Barney and Betty Hill abduction case. She brought me back a book from Walter Sullivan, who at the time was the New York Times science writer called We Are Not Alone, right. about life out there. Yes. She was into that in a big way, and but, so but not I in, was. But not in like the tabloidy way, but in, no, in, she in, was really digging She in. was into the scientific end of, you know, what's out there? Why are we here? And that really sparked my interest in it. And then I was into science and chemistry yeah. and model rocketry, and I did all that. And But she helped push that. She fueled it. Do you remember the day of the moon landing? Uh, it was uh, in July 1969. Yes. And I was 19 years old, watching it on television yeah. with my father, and it was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. You were riveted. I still am. I mean, was it, 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 get it, give me a sense of really what, like, was everyone in the neighborhood? Was everyone you, you knew yeah, talking think, about it? I think it? everybody was hooked to the television yeah. sets. And most of us at the time watched Walter Cronkite on CBS <laughs> yep. News. Yep. I met Walter a few years before he died oh. here in Los Angeles. He was attending an Emmys party. And he he walked right past me. And, you know, this was, you're looking at a kid who was in news all his professional life. There he was. He's Walter Cronkite. He's walking right past me. What do I say to him? So I said, Mr. Cronkite, George Norrie, nice to meet you. 
Yes, I am. <laughs> he kept going. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I met him. What else do you need? But I met him. So that's uh, kind of like for you, the Beatles, I think, probably. you know, Never that, met them. That, but but Cronkite would be your Beatles, yeah, I guess, is absolutely. what I'm saying. Absolutely. In those days, that would have been great, So when did, the, when did the interest in news spark in you? Oh, geez. Or journalism? I started when I was 19 years old, working for uh, WXYZ Television at the time in Detroit. Uh, and I was going to University of Detroit to be a dentist because wait what all my family members were dentists and Dad who was paying for college at the time said hey, this is a great career look at your cousins they're all doing well um, and they all went to the University of Detroit it was like boilerplate that's yeah. what I did but this was that era too which is you, you listen to your parents yeah and you go you know into what? something that's secure that yep. you can you know follow and, the and template whatever they yeah. recommend that's yeah. what you do. And, uh, you know, we're old-time Christian Middle Eastern families, so, you know, if Dad said do it, you do it. I did it for two years, pre-dental. And um, I had heard there was a broadcast curriculum at the University of Detroit. A friend of mine, David Whitman, who has gone on to anchor shows, and I think David is in Cleveland still anchoring, he, uh, he said, look, I work as a copy boy at WXYZ, Channel 7, ABC-owned station, he said, but they won't let me go home to Cleveland for Christmas unless I find somebody for two weeks to fill in for me. Would you do it? And I said, sure, absolutely. I got paid $2 an hour, and I did it for two weeks, and a copy boy did everything. Yeah. You know, got the fi- We had film then. We didn't have videotape. So we got the film. I made coffee. The... Uh, Newswire machines from Associated Press. Yeah, those clickety clackety. They were all ribbons, so you yeah. had to clean them. You got your fingers dirty and stuff. <laughs> You're yanking but I did copy. That. I did that for two weeks, yeah. and after that stint was over, the staff went to the news director, old Frank Benish, and said, "Frank, you got to keep this kid. Yeah. He's got potential. He never complains. He he gave he works harder than anybody I've ever seen." And so he said, hey, want to stay? And I went, absolutely. Was it because you had the bug? You saw I that, had the bug. That, I mean, that was, it, did it, it excite you? Yeah, yeah. And so I switched my major. You know, I, I went into uh, my advisor at the University of Detroit the next day, switched all my courses into broadcast courses, and that was it. I didn't tell anybody. Didn't tell your parents? I didn't tell my parents oh, at all. Oh, no. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> The report card shows up. So dad calls me in. He said, George, I got to ask you something. We got the wrong report card on you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, some kid is doing great (laughs) in speech and broadcast courses, but there are no science courses for you. So I'm going to call them tomorrow and find out, you know, we got to get this fixed. I said, dad, it's not wrong. He said, what do you mean it's not wrong? I said, well, I switched my major and didn't tell anybody. And he went, you did what? He wouldn't talk to me, Larry, for two months. Two months. One day, he happened to be watching Channel 7, the ABC station, and at the end of the show, there were credits, and it said production assistant, George Norrie. I came home, and he said, was that your name I saw on that show? And I said, yeah. And after that, he went, that's pretty nice. And he accepted it. So he backed you from then on. And from then on, he did. But Uh he was, then he got obsessed with my career. (laughs) Because then he said, 
well, when are you going to be a, a reporter? Well, I said, Dan, well, you know, I'm 20 years old. I just got this job. He said, no, I think you need to be a reporter. Sure enough, at 21, I became a radio reporter for then WCAR in Detroit. So I get that job, and I'm so excited about it. And he said, well, when are you going to be a producer for a television show? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you got this reporter's job. That's great. And you've been doing it for a year plus. Maybe you should be back in TV and, you know, be a producer. I got that job. I got hired at WWJ, which is now WDIV in Detroit, the NBC station. And I came back and I told him. First thing he said was, God, that's great, George. I'm so proud of you. What's the next job up? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, what's the next job up from a producer? I said, executive producer. He said, well, when are you going to get that? Now, where, where is this drive in your stead coming from? I mean, you it obviously. from him. Yeah. I, mean, I can't was, stop. Was this the way he was in yeah. his own life? No. No? He lived it through me. Really? And he was very docile. You know, 30-some years at the same business. Um, so was this you know, his kind of vicarious way of I think so. of watching you? Because yeah. then I became an executive producer right. at another television station in Detroit. But yeah. but he wanted to know when I was going to be the news director. So I got that, and it was just bang, bang, bang until he he slowed down after yeah. that as he was getting older. But that is what has created this drive in me, Larry. You but know? you were largely behind the scenes around that time. I was an executive, yeah. a television executive. It was I so hired, it, fired, put people together, yeah. developed. And I think that's what's helped me on Coast to Coast because I've been a producer all my life. So the one thing I do know is how to build an audience and how to make a show exciting where, you know, a lot of talent, and they're very good, are talent. You know, they, they know themselves. I look at the whole picture, right. the whole package right. with the show, how it flows. You can be your moves. own boss at the same yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. And then I am who I am. I, you know, develop my own skills to be myself. Well, at what point did you realize I'm missing something by not either being on camera or being on the mic? Well, I was on the mic as a young radio reporter. And then I went back into news management, and I did that for a long, long time until I sold it. I got out of that, bought a few businesses, sold it, did pretty well. And then spent all the money. And then I realized, you know what, George, if you live one more year, you're going to be flat broke. Yeah. So, what did you do th during that time? I was a public relations executive. I owned a television production company. I, I owned a failed restaurant. So I, 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 I had a horse farm, a breeding race horse farm. Were you just you searching? Know. I mean, did having you... fun and searching yeah. and spending the money I made when I sold a business. But it was in 1996, I said, I need to get back in the business. Well, at that time, I'm 46 years old. Ain't nobody going to hire a 46-year-old guy who wants to start back in the business. Yeah, how do you reinvent yourself? And all my contacts were gone. Yeah. You know, I was being kicked around as, as an executive at uh, WNB, uh, KNBC in Los Angeles, WNBC in New York, I was being kicked around as being an executive with CBS News. When I got out, they were all gone. Those yeah. people who were interested in me were gone. And so I'm saying, geez, I'm 46 years old. I have to reinvent the wheel. I'm in St. Louis, and the big station there is KMOX Radio. Half the staff resigned 
and went to work at a different station that the sales manager bought with a group of investors. Mm -hmm. That included John Goodman, the actor, and you know Dan Deardorff, and people like that. They bought this station. They hired all this talent away from KMOX. I went, aha, they need help. <laughs> I had just you gotten saw done. an opportunity. I watched the movie Talk Radio with right. Eric Bogosian. Yes. And I said, that's one thing I have not done in my career. I haven't done that kind of talk radio before. So I called him up. I called up Tom Langmeyer, who was the general manager at the time and program director at KMOX. He hired me on the spot. He said, you got a great reputation. Everybody knows you in St. Louis. I want you to do fill-in news and fill-in talk. I don't have anything full-time for you right now, and I have no promises of that. But he kept me busy three out of four days a week, which is pretty good. And I would fill in for Jim White, who in St. Louis was the talk show guy. He'd been around for 100 years, God rest his soul. And I would do my shows, which were my UFO shows and my alien shows. So that's what you launched right into. That's what I liked. Right away. Filling in. Filling in for a different guy. Now, okay. So you It wasn't my show. It wasn't your idea. I was the backup guy. Yeah, okay. Langmeyer would call me in, and he'll say this to the day. He called me in and said, George, I like your style. I like how you sound on the air, but you got to stop this UFO stuff. There is no market for you. So for you that. were bringing this to the table. Yeah. Uh, okay, this is what I'm trying to get at. This was something you said, I'm going to carve out my niche, and it will be this topic, this, exactly. this content. Didn't even know about Coast to Coast and Art Bell yeah. at all, except one night into the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving into KMOX to do fill-in Saturday morning news. They had a news talk format, mm-hmm. so I was going to be one of the hosts. And I'm playing around on the dial, and I listen to 550 KTRS, and I hear Coast to Coast talking about aliens and UFOs and Bigfoot. And I went, that's it. That's my stuff. I want to do that show. No sooner did I get into work, but that following Monday, the folks from KTRS called me, the people who were airing Coast to Coast, locally stationed in St. Louis, and said, we're trying to go more local and we want you to do overnights here for $33,000 a year. And I went, well, I'm trying to resurrect my career. It's not a lot of money, but you know, I'll get back on the air on a full-time basis. I came in Larry and they dropped coast to coast and I filled in from 12 to five, 12 AM to 5 AM. So between the time that you discovered Coast to coast, and they asked you to be on. How much time was in between those? those? Not long at all. Yeah. Months. (laughs) So now I'm on the air on KTRS doing my own show, and I called myself the Nighthawk. And I'm getting calls from people who are furious that Coast to Coast is not on. Yeah, they're livid. They've been listening to art. And and I'm the guy who bumped them off, right? Right, right. So after that calm Oh, boy, down, you get to relive that yeah, again, don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly, over and over again. So after that passed, I was doing a talk show, except nobody would call because nobody was used to it on that station. And so I had the great idea to run the old Peter, Paul, and Mary song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Yeah. So I play it, and every time the word flowers would come up, I potted down and went, phone calls. 
So we go. Where have all the phone calls gone? Long time passing. Where have all the phone calls gone? <laughs> long time. And I kept doing it over and over again. Then I'd see a, a dial light up, and I'd answer it, and the guy would say, "On the air, George, what do I got to do to get you to stop playing that song?" And I said, "Stay on the line. Don't hang up." One call became two, became three, and then I became a legend in St. Louis for that. It was at that time that Art Bell quit again. And <laughs> yeah, again. you say again. <laughs> it's and, really hard to keep track of how many times he he bailed yeah, and then came back. And yeah. bailed. And uh, Mike Siegel was hired to replace him. Mike was one of our freelance guys from Seattle filling in on our station. And as soon as he got the full-time gig, I said, Mike, if you ever need a backup, please tell your people about me. Because I do everything that this show does. Same guests. Everything. And he said, sure, I will. Two weeks later, I get a call from Alan Corbeth, who was in charge of Coast to Coast. And he said, hey, I I could use you as a backup. And in April of 2001, I did my first fill-in show. And then I did another one, and then Siegel was asked to leave. We had, uh, I think, gone down to 333 affiliates. Right. We're at 600 now. And Art came back again. Right. Right? Maybe to help save the show, I don't know. But all of a sudden, months into the game, his back started falling on him, and whatever issues he had, he decided to quit again. And... September 2002, the network executives here flew to St. Louis, signed a contract with me. Keep in mind, I was making $33,000 a year before. <laughs> 35 would have looked good. <laughs> yeah, give me a 10% so, and I'll be yours. So they gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. Right. And then uh, the rest is history. Yeah. And you, know, you just inked another... Uh, Seven-year deal. Yeah. And... Um, 600 affiliates, ratings are at an all-time high for us, major markets everywhere, keep picking up stations, and uh, life is good. Do you still like coming in and talking about this? Do you you want for material? Is there something to talk about every night in this world? I changed the show a little bit, Larry. You can't just do it. I realized this a long time ago. The same UFO shows every night. No, of course not. Because you know what? We really don't have that definitive proof, right? Right, right. You can't keep doing ghost shows. You can't just keep doing Bigfoot shows until you show Bigfoot. So I realized really fast into this coast-to-coast game that you got to broaden this program, George. Right, right. So I started looking at conspiracies and current events with my edge— with my twist sure, and privacy issues, what's Big Brother doing to us, spying, and that just exploded for us. It, well, it became the alternative media on mainstream media. Right, because it became yeah. the story. I mean, it now we realize how many people have been listening or yeah. have been watching, and then that we just... We were way ahead of Ed Snowden yeah. and people like that. Yeah. And now it's evolved. It's got its own personality, that it's a all-encompassing show... That, as Howard Beale in the, in the movie Network said, I'm as mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. That's what we program. That's what we do on a nightly basis. 
And so we are never, ever without material. The day events fuel that. My first hour is somewhat news-oriented with my spin, with my twist, and then we get into show guests who will deal with all kinds of things. Now, you are, how much time do you spend in St. Louis? I'm there about 40% of the time, and I'm there primarily because my kids are there and my six grandchildren are there. And so the network built me a studio in the cave. Um, (laughs) They built me a studio in Hawaii um, for personal reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, I'm in Los Angeles. And that one's in a volcano, the by the way, I think. Yeah, that, right? that could, I hope not. It could <laughs> erupt at any of Kilauea, just, just trying which to is help, leaking. Just trying to help the mystique here. All right, do what you want. Uh, have you um, been surprised at how some of the celebrity... Uh, the, the celebrity world has gravitated to you? You started to find a lot of people... In Hollywood, listen who are to this totally show in, because they're working weird hours, yeah. and you're writing staffs of TV shows that have been working, you know, through the night and that sort of stuff. Tell me a little about that. And they musicians, yeah, Billy Gibbons, John Fogerty, right, uh, Robert Davi, the actor singer, uh, all of them love the show, and they have migrated to us and to me, and we become close friends, and it's kind of cool. Um, I go to events, Larry, um, several times a month all around the country, speaking engagements and full-scale events. And you don't realize how many people this show touches until you meet these people in the right, flesh. Right, And I had a guy uh, before 1,000 people just a few weeks ago in Del Rio, Texas, stood up. And we take a little Q&A from the audience stood up and tears are streaming down his face, streaming. And he he said, you've saved my life. You have no idea what you've been able to do for me in this program. Thank you. And he sat down. We had another guy who I ran into in Boise, Idaho. He called the show when I was doing something with a heart specialist, an expert on hearts and stem cells. He could barely walk three feet without stopping and having to sit down and gasp. Mm. The guy who was on the show, Christian Wild, he's a researcher, knows everybody in the stem cell world. And he said, what's wrong with you? And the guy's name was Billy. And he said, well, I've had three heart attacks and my heart is half dead. He said, you'd be perfect candidate for stem cells. He got him into a trial program. The guy's jogging today. Oh, man. His heart has almost regenerated. It was dead. He had, like, months to live. That makes it worth it to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. You know, like coming into work. You know, I've, I've been here now uh, 12 years. I'm entitled to 36 weeks vacation total. <laughs> I've taken two weeks right. in 12 years. Yeah. I'll take a Friday off once a month. Uh, you know, and we work holidays. We're live on holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, no pre-tape. I don't know how many talent do that, but it's a pledge I made to an audience that loves radio and gets very lonely on a holiday. Right. And and radio being so interactive and so one-on-one that we're part of their family. And so you've got somebody who's alone at Christmas this radio show becomes their family. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not there live, 
they've lost something and they get depressed. And I'm not going to put them through that. It is an element of radio that has has faded. I mean, I, you and I have both worked on a local level. I can remember very distinctly working the strangest hours in Odessa, Texas, you know, late night, middle of the night, whatever, uh, on an AM station. After that pattern change, you, you're lucky if you get outside the city yeah. limits. Um, but the calls that come in, people people need you. They mm-hmm. count on you. They and they need a presence there for whatever reason. Um, and as radio has evolved, and I'm not trying to be the grumpy old man about how great it used to be, it's just things have changed. But that element is gone, that, that, that connection. And you have managed to create that on a very big platform. Uh, and I'm not a screamer, Larry. You know, no. I, I could do that kind of talk radio, but it's not me. Well, that's you what's know? interesting about I wanted to ask you about that, because one of the things, I've, when, when people who aren't familiar with your show ask me, what, what is it that George does? And I think what's interesting is that I, I don't hear you pass judgment. I hear you give people a platform. And, you're, and certainly, you get, you get some people who are out there, and you mm-hmm. get some people who really push the envelope, and you, people have, you, know, you have a very vocal audience, and they'll say, why do you put that crackpot on? Why do you put that idiot on? But but they listen to them. But you're even-handed with it, and, and you're. I don't feel like you're taking sides. You know, I, I. That's what's interesting about what you do is you present it, you give it a platform. I pull it. Yeah, I pull it out. Right. But I'm not there to make that guy feel bad, or to nix him, or to destroy his theory. I'm there to present it. Yeah. You know, and if he thinks that there's life after death. I'm not going to be the one to challenge that and say, no, you're wrong. I'll, I'll get a different guest who doesn't believe that. Right. And I'll do the same. What I see myself as, I'm a facilitator. Mm-hmm. I will pull out the best in a guest without putting them down or chasing them or making them feel inferior. And that's why they feel so comfortable to share things with me. You know, it's also, you're kind of a storyteller. I mean, even though you're pulling the story I out of somebody else. But you, but you, again, it's another kind of lost art. It's one of these things that we don't see or hear that often. It's just great storytelling that takes it t- its time, that unfolds, yep. that wraps you, you up you in it. you build it. Right. And, and, uh, and we've done that. We've with had this, some great stories. Would the show work in the daytime? No. Have you thought about that? I don't think so. Has it ever been brought up? Yeah, it's been kicked around. And another thing I have nixed was putting in a camera. Uh, I've turned down a few lucrative deals from some of the yeah. networks, sci-fi networks and stuff, who considered, you know, let's put a camera in here and listen to your show late night. The mystique is letting your mind wander. I mean, if people saw you and me in the studio right now, it kind of kills the image of nighttime and yeah. what they're doing. Instead, you're going to see two guys just chit-chatting before a microphone. <laughs> I don't want that image of coast to coast. Right. I want them to think we're at a campfire and the fire's blazing and the marshmallows are toasting and we're telling these great stories to scare you, to educate you. And if you see it, me sitting here with my Doors t-shirt on, <laughs> it kind of kills that flavor. Yeah, it really does. You know. I mean, the, the the phrase is theater of the mind. It's one that you and I have probably used and heard a million times. That's exactly what it is. Because the, the thing that is created, and you know this even about the stories that you hear, what is created in the mind's eye is more powerful and more 
moving and more motivating or more scary or whatever than than the visual of it. It's it's what you create. Yep. What's the last? What what what's the last? story or guest or what's the last time you sat talking to someone and you got the chills i always get the chills do you i always get the chills you but still I'll tell get you, that reaction but i'll tell you a story that i do get chills from give me a good one guy called up years ago and said uh george you know i was thinking of committing suicide but i didn't know what i was going to do and where i was going to do it so i got my gun got in my car and I went driving to look for the right spot. And I said, I saw a little lake on the side of the road, maybe an hour outside of my home. And I was going to get out and sit there at the park bench and just blow my head off. And he said, so I got out of the car. I went there. I sat on the bench. And I'm watching these ducks hit the lake and pop out again. And this old farmer sat down next to me. And I'm going, what the heck? ready to kill myself, and there's this old farmer sitting here, and the guy was just talking and talking and talking about everything, about life and this and that. He said, but i got to tell you something. I felt great. He really was fun to talk to and listen to. And, you know, when he asked me, he says, so tell me, you look a little depressed. What's wrong with you? And I, I opened up that, you know, I had a bad relationship. I had a bad job, that things weren't going well for me. He turned me around. He said, well, you can always go back and get a better job and find a girl that you love. And doggone it, George, that's what I did. I went back home, and it took me a little bit, but I got a new career, and I love it. And I found somebody that I'm in love with, and life is great. And I came that close to killing myself. So I'm going back to that place to thank that guy a year later. I don't have his name. But it's a small town of 4,000 people. There's one barber shop there. I know they know who he is. So I go in there, and I'm talking to the barber, and he said, oh, you want to go to that house way up there to the right and talk to his daughter? And he said, I had a feeling something might have happened, but I wasn't sure. But I found the house. I knock on the door. And this younger lady comes, and I start talking to her. And I says, excuse me, but the barber told me to come here, and I just wanted you to know that about a year ago, your father, I assume, was just so overwhelming for me that he changed my life. And I just wanted to thank him. And she said, wait a minute. You're the fifth person to come up to me and say that. Dad died 15 years ago. Yeah, there you go. And you hear that, and you chill. Yeah. And you, you just go, I don't know if that was real or not, but who cares? You kind of want to believe you it. You want though. it to be real. I mean, isn't that what a lot of this stuff is, is that we just want to believe it? You want to believe I'm just going to ask you outright dumb questions. Do you believe that there is intelligent life on other planets? What I would say on the air is it doesn't matter what I believe. Right. It matters what you believe. But since you've asked me. I have asked Of you. course I believe there's other yeah. life. It's, it's, it's impossible not to believe it. Do you believe we will somehow make contact in our lifetime? Or is this, uh, that's just impossible. Well, I think though. we already have. Do you think so? Would we make contact publicly? That's another question. All right. Would so, governments come out and say, we have been visited since the beginning of time? Probably not. So we have been visited, you believe, 
and it's being kept from I us. I even think we have been seated. I think they are the so-called gods. Now, there is a god. There is a divine intelligence. But I think that this planet was jump-started by extraterrestrials who have visited here and say, well, let's let's manipulate this Neanderthal man and boost him a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you grew up in a religious household or spiritual. I mean, part of spiritual. the spiritual household. Uh, did you go to church every week? Yeah, I did. I went to catechism. Yeah. I, was, I was raised as a Roman Catholic. Uh, I, am, I don't go to church now. I do believe. I do believe a lot, so a ju- but I don't believe in organized right, religion. Right, you know, when and boy, if and if you know, you're raised Catholic, happen, that's the most uh, or, you know, how organized hiding it be? hiding the child abuse, yeah, and things like that just really spoiled it for me. Yeah, and so I figure you can still be a believer, you can still be spiritual, and as long as you care about your fellow man, that's all it's all about. Do you believe in? That that we can be in touch with spirits who haven't moved on. Does does do do those stories as much as they yeah, give you the chills? I think some you, of those. You'd think I we think can communicate. Just way too many stories of people who have seen things or heard things um, that they're out there. Too many supernatural things. Do you believe in a an Illuminati style? Like One world government yeah. pushers. Oh, no question about it. Yes. That Ask me that 10 years that ago. That controls world events and, and how we perceive them. And they manipulate them. everything. Yeah. Everything. So 10 years ago, no? 10 years ago, I would have thought you were nuts asking that question. Yeah. Not anymore. This program has made me realize they're out there. They want to control. They want to manipulate. And they're doing a great job doing it. Mm-hmm. Are you... Does that bother? <laughs> what a dumb question. Does that bother you, or can you live your life knowing that that exists, and just realize that's just the way things are? You can't. I mean, are, do you ever feel in danger? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I was I, almost kidnapped in Mexico uh, in a very bizarre situation. You can Google it. George Nori kidnapped in Mexico, or even Homeland Security people got involved and made a statement or two. Uh, it was just a strange thing that. My partner and I, uh, she got out and I got out uh, when we were there. Um, weird, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I look over my shoulder sometimes. Do you receive threats that feel credible um, beyond the crackpot, you know, they, internet there, trolls? There, there are some that are more individual where they just don't like you. Yeah. You know, and they're trying to be Mr. Big behind hiding of an email. Sure. You know, stuff like that. that I've had stalkers. Uh, we've had to go to court on and people like that. I had one woman who mailed me here in Los Angeles pictures of her in front of my St. Louis house. And she's from Kentucky. And with the little inscription, wouldn't I look nice living here with you? Wow. And, and, and you know, if she looked like Pam Anderson, eh, I might have considered it. There's the downside to people finding that connection to yeah. you. They they do believe that you are part of their family or should be. Or should be. Yeah. Or, uh, and yeah. so after we got a restraining order, um, she immediately filed one against me with the same judge who threw it out. And then she goes to the police department locally in St. Louis and claims that I was breaking into her house every night in Kentucky. And they said, you're talking about the talk show guy? And she said, yes. <laughs> they knew my attorney, who was a cop, former cop. 
And apparently when they asked her, how am I breaking in? She said, through the radio. Oh, boy. And they looked at her and they went, ma'am, you need to leave. So she got back into the car and went back to Kentucky. And the strangest part about it, Larry, she's a lawyer. (laughs) I have one of those stories. I had I, I was working at a radio station and I was receiving I know you this has happened to you 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 get those fat envelopes yeah. with the handwritten note paper that you in can't it. read yeah well this was just like four five six seven pages crammed front and back with handwriting yeah she had been writing down every song title we were playing oh, but was but was making circles around certain letters and connecting and and then finding numbers and she would call those numbers and make notes about what I met this woman at a at an event one of those things you're out at a live event and there they are all somewhere yeah, that happened and to me she, and this 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 average looking housewife came up to me and and introduced herself and then looked at me in the eye and said you're getting the messages larry Oh, and I knew did you it, freak? I knew immediately who it was. I just kind of froze, and yeah. I said, "I said yes, I am." And she said, "You understand, right?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And then she said, "May I hug you?" And I said, "Okay." okay. And it was a very now. Here's the thing: she hugged me. She kind of winked, or you know, gave me that knowing look, like you and I like were you, connected. We were connected. She walked away, and a few minutes, and I'm telling people about this. I said, "That's the woman! I swear to God, that's her." She drives away with a station wagon and a couple of kids in the back. I know it's it's back crazy. to her life. You know, I'll get emails from people from a woman who says, "Thanks for playing my song, one of my bumper songs." Right? Uh-huh. Well, you think, okay, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. <laughs> Next one comes in. How did you know? Oh, no. And then it gets more and more yeah. and more. Yeah. It's part of the business. So in the next 10 years, what's what's the big story that's going to break? Is it, well, is, it, is, it the, is it the government monitoring? Is it the, No, you know, it's probably it, going to be um, this planet was hit by an electromagnetic pulse, a flare from the sun. Or some rogue nation detonated a nuke in the atmosphere and, and shuts down our power grid. And I've been pushing to get that grid insulated. It costs $2 billion to fix. That's chump change for yeah. us. But if we don't, we're headed into some huge problems. Yeah, we're so reliant oh, so much. Everything's electric. This is like, you know, you yeah. shut down the power. You ain't got a podcast, Larry. Yeah. Um. I was uh, by a local Walgreens in St. Louis months ago. The power was out. The manager was trying to get business done individually and by hand. Yeah. Those young people, they can't add without a no, computer. No, They couldn't give you change. Well, think about just alone how much we rely on this little black box right here to communicate, to to do, uh, to, I mean, so much. Leave it at home for a day. You'll go crazy. Yeah. You go nuts. You well, feel naked. You, you realize how reliant you are on, on doing. It's your office. Yeah, I mean, uh, buying things. Uh, you know, uh, paying for a movie. Uh, I mean, uh, going uh, get you know your what? coffee. I remember coming back into my office in De- in St. Louis with a stack of pink little notes of people who had called me while I was out. Mm-hmm. And you sit back and you make your calls. But that's the way it was done. Right. And then I thought I was a king when I had a pager. And a phone number showed up. I'm going, who the heck is that? I used to have one of those big war-like Motorola phones. Right. 
Just amazing. Yeah. So if that goes down, if the elect- if if the electricity goes out, our phone connection goes out, everything goes. Then we're it's Mad Max. Everything time. goes. Yeah. It's Mad Max. Stores get looted and robbed. Yeah. Yeah. People go crazy. And so we're and that is possible. We're on the precipice. Yes. You think that is what I think could happen. Yeah. Beyond and, sickos causing World War Three and things like that, this solar flare episode is real. Wow. Oh, good. So, okay, there's a. That's either the janitor or it's a ghost out there. Or, what, do you, what do you think? Or a hitman. <laughs> you know what? Don't do that. Now you're creeping me out. Uh, tell me about the book. Oh, we've got a book coming out called uh, "Someone Is Hiding Something." The former Malaysian prime minister coined that phrase, and it has to do with that missing Malaysian plane, yes. MH370. That, that nobody is talking they can't about. can't find it, and they're not talking about it. Disappeared uh, How is that March possible? 8th of 2014 with 239 people aboard, 227 uh, people and 12 crew members, and they can't find it. Uh, G- George, a month... And it flew for seven hours. A month went by, and I was going, why can't they find it? Now, how far, how long... Has it Seven, been? It's, it was March of uh, yeah. 2014. So we're coming up on a year. You're coming up on a year. And there's no sign of nothing, it. Nothing. Nothing. So the, so the book explores that. Do you with, with various strange, realistic, and bizarre theories of what may have happened to that plane that run the gamut from ran out of fuel, hijacked, pilots got killed, the plane went down. But it doesn't explain why it flew for seven hours. Right. That's the weird thing. So we are also taking the possibility of maybe it was taken by somebody. You know, maybe it was flown somewhere and it's someplace. They need that plane for another 9-11 type attack one day. This wow. Boeing 770 is a big plane. Yeah, it's huge. You know, um, Are they still looking for it? I, is no, the it's, rescue, not, it's not that active. I think the rescue it, operation is I, there's no rescue operation. Well, obviously, anymore. yeah, but you know. I mean, but 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 the Australians were supposedly no, they spent still, way too much money. They're not doing it anymore. It's just it was a thousand down. miles off of Perth, Australia. Yeah. They think, but it doesn't explain why it flew for seven hours. But with the former prime minister saying someone is hiding something. Somebody is. And that's a book I wrote with David Wayne and Richard Belzer. They already had a lot of it written, and they called me up and said, we want your theories, the strange stuff. Yeah. And so we added that to it. Belzer. Tell me about Belzer. Good guy. Yeah. He's gone through some tragedy. His brother yeah. committed suicide. This is yeah. recently, right? Yeah. And yeah. He, had a, he had an apartment in Paris, and that burned down. And he has uh, retired from Law & Order uh, where he was playing uh, Munch. Right. And he, uh, that's a, a character. A good He's guy. been around forever. Good and guy. Yeah, and great stand-up comedian. He was in the New York Funny. scene for yeah. years and years. And he's done some broadcasting in right. his life, too. Right. Good guy. And that book is out? You can buy it on Amazon right, right. now. And Someone is hiding something. <laughs> oh, George, I, I, would you, will you do this for as long as it's exciting to you? Is it This uh, show or yeah. my show? No, not this one. <laughs> This one's, this one's, I'm wrapping this up, up pretty soon. I've got to get ready for Coast to Coast. No, this one's done in four minutes. Okay. Um, no, but Coast I'm to gonna, Coast. But I'm not retiring. Yeah, I know. I'm, I am going. This is what Tom Danheiser, my producer, will come back on the air one day and say, he died. He's no longer with us. We'll be playing tapes from here on in. That's how I want to go out. Uh-huh.
Unless you can find a way to come back and do your show from beyond. That would be great. What a <laughs> rating sensation that would be. Huh? What's your favorite movie all time? It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. My mom showed it to me when I was a kid. She said, you'll never forget this movie. And she was right. Uh, it has it all. And maybe why that story resonated you know? with you so much, uh-huh. The Farmer. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite song all time? <sighs> favorite song? God, I like a lot of them. I like oldies. You know, I sing at my events. I, with a full band. What 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 you song know? do you love to sing? Uh, my favorite is an Engelbert Humperdinck song, "Love Me with All Your Heart." Oh wow, I love that. But I I sing Elvis songs and stuff. Yeah. And a few Sinatra. You like those crooners? I've learned somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me. My little Bobby Darin song. So I do all that stuff. Oh my God! Now the groupies are going to be showing up, uh, George. Congratulations on a, an amazing, unique career. Thank you. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I respect what you do and how you do it, especially because there's just nobody like you, man. Well, listen, I, I, I'm blessed, and I'm blessed to know people like you. You know, when I first came to this network, um, you were there. You were gracious uh, and kind, and I don't forget those things. Oh, man. Well, right back at you, man. All right, go. Thank you. Talk about something spooky. Off we go. <laughs> Get a monkey. Get a monkey! Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 